I'm Winston Cook-Wilson. I'm Andy Cook. And I'm Sam Sadomsky. And we are the hosts of Late Era, a new music podcast from Osiris Media exploring the undiscussed, underappreciated, and sometimes unfathomable late career work from the artists we love. As critics, musicians, and fans, we're inspired by the artists who maintained a vision throughout their careers, aging with grace and finding new ways to channel the muse. But we're just as fascinated by the ill-advised experiments, the inscrutable rock operas, the blues cover albums, the sudden, inexplicable shifts to wearing fedoras and other strange hats and press photos. On Late Era, we'll follow these trajectories, leaving no stone unturned and no question unasked. Each episode will explore a particular album, from Billy Joel going classical, to Joni Mitchell's synth experiment, to Miles Davis's hip-hop phase, and Jethro Tull's 90s concept album about their own website. A domain where might Things will get weird, but hopefully we'll also introduce you to a few gems. Join us this summer on Late Era as we start our journey into the depths of our record collections and the most uncanny corners of pop music history. See you soon. As two middle-aged dads who run a fish podcast, Dave and myself are both well-bearded men. And because of that, we're constantly on the lookout for great products to groom and trim our beards. And that's why we are so thankful in this trying time for a company like Harry's. Harry's knows that now is not the time to overpay for razors at the drugstore. Harry's knows that sometimes it's better to stay inside. That's why they ship razors and gel and product directly to you so you can experience the quality of a Harry's shave in just a few days from the convenience of your own home. So we encourage all of our listeners to join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trier offer by going to harrys.com slash btp. That's harrys.com slash btp. Harry's has really returned to the essential. You get quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 per blade. They've cut out the middleman. They manufacture their blades in their German blade factory that's been owning precision blades for a century, which means you get incredibly high-quality blades at factory direct prices. It's super convenient because the blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription, and you can feel really good about your purchase because they have a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund, and 1% of the proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations that are devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And I'll just say that um, my beard's gotten a bit unruly in quarantine, but no matter what, I refuse to have a neck beard. I'm not that lazy. <laughs> I cannot do my neck beard. I gotta have lines. I use Harry's to keep those lines intact. The rest of it gets kind of bushy, but there's gonna be uh, there's a line where the pair will not go, and that's what I'm using Harry's for. Absolutely. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com/btp. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip. 
five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. It's a fantastic deal from a fantastic company that can help us out in these difficult times. So go to harrys.com BTP to start shaving better today. Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 103 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself, generally speaking, use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic, neglect to see the forest for the trees. Forget that there are many other wonderful bands out there which to spend their hard-earned cash. So, we are trying to do something about that. Introduce you to Same. We are. These are crazy, troubling times. Oftentimes they're inspiring. Other times they're perplexing. But the constant throughout all of this, if you're listening to this podcast, is music. The music of Fish and all the music that filters away and off of it based off of your own personal interests. And we're happy to share both the music of fish as well as the music that we connect to fish here. And in our 103rd episode, we are revisiting a song that we have not covered since our third episode. Wow. I didn't think about that. that. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Uh, And that is Bathtub Gin. Uh, in our in episode three, way back in April 2017, we talked about the Riverport Gin. Here we are talking about the Rupp Gin from Lexington, Kentucky, on November 7th, 1996. This is a fantastic, deep, nearly 30-minute-long jam. Um, and this is our first traditional episode in about two months, so we're very excited to sit down talk a bit about this excellent version of bathtub gin as well as some of the music that we connect to it oh indeed some of the themes that you can expect to hear about in this episode include the synth effect rage gaze and in the words of tom waits going out west they'll appreciate me and on that note let's get to the fish Thank you. 
Brothers in the bathtub. All right. So, why are we talking about the Rup Gin from Lexington, Kentucky on November 7th, 1996? I've got a couple reasons. Dave, why do you want to talk about this jam? I mean, simply put, it's the best version of Bathtub Gin from 1996. And I would argue the best pre-Great Went version of the song. I mean, in terms of length and inventiveness, the only ones that really come closer are uh, December 5th, 1995 from Amherst, November 9th, 1995 from uh, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, and then, uh, of course, August 13th, 1993, from, uh, that's the Murat Gin. I mean, of course, we're talking about standalone versions, that would be uh, disqualifying the real gin from mm-hmm. New Year's Wish 1995. And yet, this is kind of one of several examples of how, in the fall of 1996, once fish got the hell out of the Northeast and began their trek westward, things really started to heat up. And I think uh, this gin can kind of be divided into four separate sections. you got your awesome Type 1 Rage from Shrey that even at one point kind of slows down and hints at the... Uh, Fire on the Mountain type teas from uh, portions of the famous New Year's 1995 Drowned. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you get an entirely page-driven jam that features him tearing it up on the Fender Roads in the Moog while uh, Trey plays his mini kit. Third part, even thicker, heavier Trey Rage after he picks his guitar back up. And then you get kind of like two and a half minutes of uh, like Whirly Gig-inspired weirdness that segues cleanly into the hold-your-head-up organ motif signaling bike. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a four-part monster, and it fuses elements of bathtub gin that we are going to hear, well, that we've heard over the last couple of years, that hose jamming. We're going to still hear a lot of that as we move towards the millennium, but also kind of the expansiveness and the sort of candy groove that tends to come off of bathtub gin uh, throughout its overall history. Um, As we're going to kind of discuss here, especially uh, in our next segment here, I think this is one of the most important jams and one of those just game-changing moments in Fish's history. You know, you're coming a week off of Remain in Light and you play this type of groove-oriented jam based off of one of your own traditional songs. It almost is like a completely different feel than even what they got when they played Cross-Eyed and Painless five nights earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's a multifaceted monster and also the centerpiece of the kind of set that we like. Because if you count... yes. Hold your head up, bike, and hold your head up as one song, which we think you should. This is a four-song set. Susie Greenberg, Bathtub Gin, John Fish and Showcase, You Enjoy Myself, Wham Bam, Get the Fuck Off the Stage, Encore Frankenstein. That's all you need. Yeah, I was listening to this set uh, earlier today, and I was thinking about it within that context of, like, this is an early four-song second set. You know, and all for all intents and purposes, this showcases the narrative that uh, they're going to tell in a lot of different sets over the next couple of years. Um, so, stepping back really quick, some comparable versions of Bath to Gin here, um, as we've noted, and as many of you probably are aware. I mean, this is a very, very famous gem. We're not unearthing any sort of a gem, if you will, within Bathtub Gin. This is a, a really big tentpole gem within Fish's career. Um, they're probably like 
eight or nine comparable versions that really match up with the overall style of this. Um, so a couple just running through here. We, we talked about this here in the intro. The August 13th, 93 Murat Gin. This is one of the pioneering fish jams and really a moment when the band broke through with everything that they've been working towards since the spring of 1992. Uh, November 9th, 1995 from Atlanta. This is like one of those we're back jams that follows a 10-day break after Halloween, which then paves the way towards December. And uh, in December, we got a fantastic standalone gin in December 5th, 1995 from Amherst, which is just an outstanding jam that bleeds everything that we love about December 95. Let's see. Going forward, we got November 1996 from Kansas City. Certainly um, a trailer jam, excellent back end focused on uh, lots of pages, keyboards. That goes into the vibration of life. That's a show that we featured on a few episodes back because that had the grooves in the yam. Oh, yeah. Then um, July 10, 1997 from Marseille. Very interesting show, which you should uh, hear if you have not. That's got a wild jam. Features kind of like a pre-1994 take on bathtub gin before getting extremely funky. Of course, November 23rd, 1997 from Winston-Salem. That's just... It's hard to believe that human beings played that version of Baptist Gin. <laughs> what is it, like 35, 36 minutes? I don't Something know. Something like that. that. And it's just that, it's just like total shoegaze and Hendrix. And then you have this like weird psychedelic, like Matt LaJoy type of moment at the end where like Trey's just like creating webs of sound. Like, yeah. And somehow it ends up in divided or uh, down with disease yeah i don't smoke and i feel like i have to take a cigarette after listening to that version of <laughs> um, next God. yeah wrapping up this list uh as we noted at the top july 29th 1998 the riverport gin covered in episode three i would argue this is the greatest opener in uh, fish history i don't think that they've ever opened a show better than on july july 29th 1998 um Hopping ahead here, uh, a lot of really good gins in 2.0. Not a lot that really lined up with this gin, but I would encourage anyone here who's not familiar with the gins of the 2003-2004 era to get on that as soon as possible. But most specifically here, the February 22nd, 2003 jam from Cincinnati. It's a wild 2.0 psychedelic monster. The final six minutes focuses solely on the distorting the gin riff repeatedly and just like dementing it over and over again. Uh, and then fast forwarding here to 3.0, where in the last five years, gin's gone through something of like a type two jamming revival. Uh, the August 21st, 2015 uh, set closer from Magnaball. This is a rage your face off gin. And the December 30th, 2015 Madison Square Garden, which is slightly shorter, but. Um, really gets into this kraut rocky space and almost feels like fish channeling uh spiders kid smoke from wilco um so stepping back significance of this overall show and this overall run that we are on here so as dave noted here in the top going out west they'll appreciate me while nobody would argue that Lexington, Kentucky is necessarily in the west of the <laughs> United States. Um, I say is it is. The- no. 
<laughs> this is one of their few shows that the band has played in Kentucky, and I believe it's the only show that they've played at the Rupp Arena. And this kind of signifies this moment in the tour where the band starts pushing themselves out west, similar to what they did in fall of 1994, as well as the spring tours of 1992 and 1993, and visiting locales that they really don't visit too much anymore, and they were still relatively unknown while also selling out larger arenas here. So in that moment, there was a ton of transition and a ton of movement towards what fish would become over the next year and what would really sustain them through the end of 1.0. And in all that, November 7th, 1996 is really typical November 1996 show in that it features a standard set list. Most songs are played within a five to seven song, seven show gap features monumental jamming in places that just two weeks earlier would have seemed shocking. Set one is kind of a quick run through the Nectar's Rift era tunes with the only quote new songs coming on the back end in the form of Free, Gaiuti, which isn't necessarily new but is still rare, and Character Zero. On paper, it looks like inessential listening for longtime fans in the way that very much of Fall 1996 appears to be. However, I would argue that this is one of the charms of the tour and the month. So Remain in Light had changed the band as is immediately clear in the bathtub gin and the you enjoy myself but their set list hadn't really adapted yet as a result this is the last tour that you're going to hear them play a straight set one for 13 years the dichotomy here of standard early 90s fish if there is such a thing with the jam heavy late 90s 2.0 fish is just wild to hear in a single show and like dave was saying you get this kind of quasi four song second set and a pretty standard set one that could have been cherry picked out of the last five years. It's a very interesting kind of friction that's in the band at this point in time. Yeah, it's uh, certainly the the four song second set, very much unlike the one year and then head off to the pros like many of uh, like John Calipari's Kentucky Wildcats who play in this building do. But, in terms of uh, November 1996, we are big stands for the second leg of the tour. I know we think we've talked about it on some past episodes. I would highly recommend, if this is your first dip into fall of 1996 in November in particular, you should check out the following shows. We have, uh, right after Halloween, November 2nd, 1996 from Miami, that's your gigantic cross-eyed into a gigantic antelope. November 13, 1996, from Minneapolis, uh, one of the first ever jammed out versions of Susie Greenberg. November 15, 1996, from St. Louis, that is the M set. Kind of more interesting in concept and actuality, but if you uh, want to hear what John Popper sounds like, just masturbating all over Wikipod Groove, here's your chance. <laughs> and then uh, November. <laughs> November 16th, 1996, from Omaha. Amazing second set with that Runaway Jim into the Vibration of Life, into Cone, into Catapult, into Hood. Was that the show where they did uh, We're an American Band for the Encore? Yeah, Encore with American Band. That's the, the note hood, if you will, where Trey holds the uh, uh, big peak note for, I think, three minutes at that point in time. 
Um, and that was the interesting. So if you if you chart the tour here, you know it's Miami up to Minneapolis, down to St. Louis, down to Omaha, and then we go back on eleven eighteen to Memphis for your first ever jammed out two thousand one plus a really incredible simple. That simple from 1118 really competes with the simple from um, uh, 11.8, 10.31, and I believe 10.26 is the best simples of that uh, of that run, of that tour. Um, 11.19, Kansas City, very fluid, 97 quality set two. Gin into Vibration of Life, Groove is in the M. Uh, and then we skip all the way out west, November 23rd, from Vancouver, it's got an excellent Mike's Groove in set two. November 27th, Seattle. This might be the best non-Vegas show of the tour. All caps, it always is all caps, but all caps down with disease. It's like 27 minutes long, I want to say. Yeah. And uh, this is just an incredible second set that channels uh, Jimi Hendrix in his hometown on his birthday. Just so you know, whenever I try typing in the word... Uh, definitely, I want to type in DEF. My phone always 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 auto corrects to DWD in caps. So you you are not alone in that. No, that is, that I'm is, sure that, is a th- that is a thing shared by your co-host as well as I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> like a hundred other fish nerds. <laughs> so, just going forward to cap this off, uh, November 29, ninety six, from the Cow Palace in California. Fantastic, simple, and, and you enjoy myself. November 30th, 1996, Sacramento from Arco Arena, home of the Kings. Uh, amazing Grace Jam, very cool use of some guests. December 1st, 1996, from Los Angeles, Kevin Shapiro. Come on, man. This is all the makings of Delicious from the Archives. Make it happen. Gigantic yes. set two. Killer, killer tweezer. Simple, Reba, Slave. Big, big set two. Uh, December 4th, 1996 from San Diego, all caps mics, and then December 6th, 1996 from Vegas, needs no introduction. And on those lovely notes, let's listen to a little bit of the Bathtub Gin from Rupp Arena on uh, November 7th, 1996.
If you're like me, things like music, running, and cooking all bring happiness and meaning. However, there are times where even the things you rely on for happiness are not enough to help you achieve your goals. The good news is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling is a way for you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, and conveniently online environment. Schedule your own secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist at your own convenience. Everything you share is confidential, and licensed professional counselors are available with specializations in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem, among more. BetterHelp is available worldwide, and if you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you can request a new one at no additional charge. With over 3,000 licensed therapists, you can start communicating in under 24 hours with non-crisis counselors. Schedules can be set up weekly, over phone, or video, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. I've been using BetterHelp for the last few months, and I feel a strong sense of clarity, purpose, and understanding in speaking with my counselor. It's important to speak with a professional when you're feeling in need of communication and understanding. Beyond the Pond listeners get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp by using the discount code BTP. That's BTP. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash BTP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash BTP. All right. Did you guys dig that gin? You dug that gin. Dave, did you dig that gin? Fuck yeah, I dug that gin. I dug that gin. I dug that gin. That was a really good gin. And uh That's a Tanqueray 10. That's like a 10 and tonic. <laughs> that gin is um Well, it's a transformative jam for fish. It is also two things that Dave and I love very much, which we're going to feature here in our two segments of music. The first of which is the synth effect. The second of which is shoegaze. We haven't done a proper shoegaze segment in some time. In a while. So we're going to do that. Yeah, we're going to do that a little bit. Um, the synth effect, though, you know, if you listen to this gin right after Trey comes out of this heroic solo, Paige just hops on the synths, hops on the Moog, and completely changes the sound and structure of the jam and really points the way forward to 1997. And we wanted to talk about two albums that focus heavily on synths and are all the better for that. I am going to talk about an album that I have had circled for years to include on Beyond the Pond, and I finally get to do it here. That is Neil Young's Trans. (sighs) (laughs) This is a tier two Neil release for me, okay? It's a fascinating experiment with some flaws, but ultimately a record I go back to regularly. I have it alongside albums like Life, Sleeps with Angels, Psychedelic Pill, Earth, Harvest Moon, Live at Massey Hall, 
Old Ways, Live at the Cellar Door, Mirrorball, Greendale, and Lenoir. This is Neil's 12th studio album, and it was released in late 1982, recorded during his, quote, Geffen era, where he was so pissed at David Geffen and doing whatever he could to get out of his contract. Mind you, this was the first record that he made for Geffen, that he'd go on to submit multiple records outside of the Neil comfort zone because he just didn't give a fuck anymore. The Sennheiser vocoder is featured prominently throughout the album. That will become important here in a second. So leading up to this record, Young had been raising his son through a therapy program as he was born with cerebral palsy and was unable to speak. Neil really disclosed this to no one, even though a number of the tracks on his previous record, Reactor, features similarly repetitive music as he was working on communication with his son. He began recordings with Crazy Horse in late 1981 and brought in his current obsession with Krautrock into his recording approach. Recording-wise, he'd record, record live sessions with Crazy Horse and then strip them back and layer on synths and vocoders. His, vo- his vocal distortions were a direct attempt to showcase his challenges communicating with his son and his larger feeling he had that he couldn't communicate with anyone as a result of what his son was experiencing. The recording schedule took far longer than expected, and when Young decided he wanted to go back on tour in early 1983, he rushed the mixing schedule. So when Young signed to Geffen Records, he was guaranteed $1 million per record and full creative control. However, when he released Trans and 1983's Everybody's Rockin', which is essentially a 1950s car record, uh... Geffen sued him for purposely making non-commercial music. This record has lingered as one of the most influential rock records of all time for its dedication to artistry, regardless the consequences or even the outcome. And it served as an important bridge between new wave and the elder statesmen of rock and roll. Not to mention the synths. They're everywhere. Just like page in 1995 and 1996, the synths had an incredible effect on modern music and showcased Neil, while he wouldn't really return to synths until Landing on Water and Life, that pushing new sounds was key to his own breakthroughs. Now, I did a complete listen to Neil's discography back in January, back when we were consumed by the impeachment hearings and the potential to go to war with Iran, and coronavirus was this weird idea in the periphery of our minds, and... While I'd always suspected this, when I arrived at Trans, I felt as though I was arriving at a clear breaking point where Neil was saying he was done with the 70s and ready to see what else was out there musically. He had no idea where he'd end up, and ultimately, he'd have a second peak by spending much of the 90s immersed in his sounds of the 70s. And while it wasn't always successful, hello, this note's for you and landing on water, he was always trying. And that to me is one of the endearing factors of Neil Young is that even when he fails miserably, he tries so damn hard. So we're going to listen to one of my favorite Neil Young records, an album that is close to my heart, the album Trans. And the song is Transformer Man.
Okay. So, I need to go back and listen to Trans. It's been a while. I know it's an enjoyable album, unlike, uh, like you said, Landing on Water, which is a catastrophe. Trans is actually pretty cool and interesting. You know, he's still off in the open shows with the song Like an Inca. It's like the last song on that record, I think. So, let's see. What do I have in terms of synths? I'm going to talk about the great Stevie Wonder and his equally great album called Inner Visions from 1973. And the song we're going to play is Golden Lady. So basically, when I was listening back to the Rup Gin for this episode, I was reminded of the, the analog synthesizer portion along Trace Additional Drum Kit. And I said, oh yeah, this uh, what Paige is doing sounds exactly like what Stevie Wonder used all over Inner Visions. So, of course, Inner Visions is the third album of Stevie Wonder's unstoppable, unmatchable run of classic albums from 1972 to 1974, being Music of My Mind, Talking Book, The Inner Visions, and at least his slightly weaker to me, fulfilling this his first finale. And the fans had to wait all the way until 1976 for songs in the key of life. A stretch of time considered so long back then that Stevie felt compelled to write thank you for being so patient in the liner notes. So Inner Visions won Best Grammy, uh, the album for, yeah, the Grammy for Best Album in 1974. Fulfilling This is First Finale won it in 1975. And then Paul Simon won it in 1976. was still crazy after all these years because there was no Stevie Wonder record released. He uh, famously quipped... I'd like to thank Stevie Wonder for not putting out a record this year. Because then, of course, Stevie Wonder won it in 1977 with uh, Songs in the Key of Life. So, on the many of the songs in Intervisions, uh, Stevie Wonder played every instrument. He played the keys, he played the bass, and the drums. He's, uh, you think of him behind the piano, but he's a really sick drummer. But, as far as the synthesizer wizardry is concerned, he actually had a lot of production assistants from two wacky British guys, Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margaleff, also known as Tonto's Expanding Headband. Yes, you heard that correctly. So Tonto's Expanding Headband put out an album in 1971 entitled Zero Time that is quite the analog synth head trip, and anyone who digs this podcast should listen to it at least once, as it's really the kind of thing that would probably be released nowadays in a label like Feeding Tube or Beyond Beyond is Beyond and make people go, whoa. So, this is a little difficult to explain, but Tonto is an acronym for the original new Timbrel Orchestra, and it's really a gigantic collection of analog synthesizers that sort of physically resembles several like old arcade game cabinets in a semicircle with a variety of wires extending every which way. Go to Google Images, type in Tonto, and see what I mean. So Stevie Wonder was fascinated by Zero Time. I mean, enough so that he enlisted Tonto's expanding headband for uh, synth programming duties in each of his classic records, as well as uh, the soundtrack to Jungle Fever in the 90s. And the warm analog sounds are everywhere, probably most notably in the chorus of uh, the classic Living for the City and on the solo section of Golden Lady. But really, they're everywhere. And I think what Paige was using in 1996 is a Moog modular synth, 
which was definitely part of his rig in that era, and it was the foundation upon which Tonto was built. But wait, Dave, you say. Fish has actually covered Golden Lady twice. I'm aware of this. And the version's just not very good. I mean... <laughs> God, I mean... <laughs> I, I I love Trey, but he just has... Trey's got no business singing a Stevie Wonder song from 1973. I mean, I think that even uh, Trey wanted to cover Inner Visions in full in 1994, but the whiteout won out, and we should be happy that it did. So let's listen to Golden Lady now from um, Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. So moving here into new album recommendations for the first time in a couple of months. Um, I was going to originally feature Bob Dylan's Rough and Rowdy Rays in this slot. Um, but a pod with Neil and Bob in 2020 feels a bit of a slide backwards. And uh, if you listen to this pod enough, you should expect how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be short. Yeah. I never expected Dylan to release what may very well be my favorite album of the year at this point in his 79th year. It's an amazing accomplishment. We'll probably talk about it towards year's end. You should listen. The record I am going to talk about is one I bought on the last Bandcamp Friday, uh, first of the month Friday. I think it was in early June. And it's easily in my top 10 albums of the year thus far. This is Daniel Carter's Matthew Ships, William Parker's Gerald Cleaver's Welcome Adventure with an exclamation point, volume one. Side note about 2020, I said that this is in my top 10 albums of the year. You will, dear listener, know that four episodes ago, we released our top 10 albums of the year and this was not in there. 2020 is probably the most fucking insane year of my life. And that is really saying something based on what I've seen over the last five years. I spend most days waiting between this like insane inspiration at the way my generation is putting their foot down and saying that we demand a better world 
and total fear that we're headed towards a legitimate civil war. But the music, the music has just been incredible. That we recorded our top albums episode in late May, and I could have easily made a top 30 with just the first half of the year. And now, just like six weeks later, have five to six different albums since then that are potential top tenors is just insane. What a joy within a total hellfire of a year. So, Daniel Carter is the master musician here on this collection, along with Matthew Shipp, William Parker, and Gerald Cleaver. This is them recording their first album after playing together for decades. This is not their first album in decades. This is their first album as a quartet after playing together for decades. Daniel Carter has been collaborating with William Parker since the early 70s and with Matthew Shipp starting in the mid 80s. Trios played together on many recordings, uh, not their own, but by adding here legendary drummer Gerald Cleaver, they have created a masterpiece combination. It's a super group of sorts in the New York jazz scene. This is an album idea presented in two parts. This record that came out here in June of 2020 is the first volume. Volume two is scheduled to be published in the near future. This record was made in a single day back on October 29th, 2019 and features one 13 minute track, one five minute track and one 20 minute track. It's wild experimental jazz and it's literally everything I want to hear right now. I cannot say this emphatically enough. Buy this record as soon as possible. Listen to it. Soak it in. This is the sound of 2020 to these ears. This is Daniel Carter, Matthew Shipp, William Parker, Gerald Cleaver. Welcome Adventure, Volume 1. That is a, a phenomenal record. I also bought it back on that band camp Friday. It's a... Uh... Extremely enjoyable to hear them all playing together. I know, goodness, I think I saw Matthew Shipp and William Parker play with David S. Ware, the late, great free jazz saxophone player, opening for Sonic Youth back in 1998, of all things. Wow. I know, I've seen all those musicians. They've guested with Yola Tango at one time or another um, to hear them all together. It's, uh, it's quite a... Quite an excellent record. I think Volume 2 is also on the way. It may have already been recorded, in fact. So, but the album I'm going to talk about for new records is uh, at the date of recording, an album which came out last Friday. This is by the British artist Nadine Shah. The album is called Kitchen Sink. This is her fourth album. She is a 34-year-old British Muslim of both uh, Norwegian and Pakistani descent and um i just bring that up because i know um her muslim faith comes up often when she's uh discussing in like interviews and how she has to deal with xenophobia in the uk and certainly mm. on uh her third album holiday destination which was largely focused on the syrian refugee crisis so with her earlier albums kind of got her pegged as uh, the cross between P.J. Harvey and Jarvis Cocker, sort of using commanding, gothic, uh, quite British voice in the service of metropolitan slice of life vignettes. And really kind of uh, that description is not too far removed from what she's doing here. I think um, 
The main difference between her latest album and her prior efforts is her emphasis on a woman approaching middle age. The centerpiece song on the album, Trad, begins with the couplet, Shave my legs, freeze my eggs, will you still want me when I'm old? And the opening song, it's like a trip hop meets a tropicalia bop called Club Cougar. Dissects both the misogyny of uh, classic songs, like, I mean, classic in quotes, like Baby It's Cold Outside, while also dissing the hell out of these sad maneuvers of a club goer who thinks that Miss Shaw is a cougar, despite the fact that they're basically the same age. So everything musically on the album is kind of shot through like a metropolitan noir of sorts, and she can be extremely funny while dealing with xenophobic neighbors, the expectations of society, while in her words, quote, running gauntlets, swerving perverts. The uh, bass lines on this record are quite killer. It's a very percussive album, uh, very percussive. There's accentuations of brass or heavy guitar riffs, kind of they serve as the hooks to keep the listener on their toes right when you think you might be getting kind of lulled into complacency by the elegance of her voice. Uh, it's an album that really, really creeps up on you. Like I've been listening to it, um, I guess, progressively more and more since last Friday, and some of like, the lyrics and the arrangements are really starting to stick with me. She's uh, an exciting young artist who's uh, kind of come a long way in four years. I know her last record was nominated for Britain's Mercury Prize. I think the bookmakers had odds on it to win, but it did not unfortunately. So yeah, check out uh, Kitchen Sink from Nadine Shah. All right. So segment two, Rage Gaze. (laughs) What is happening in that bathtub gin, you know? It's like we've got the proto-funk wizardry of Paige McConnell on the synthesizers, a sound that whenever I hear it, I think immediately to December 1995 and November 1996. It's like a sound that he didn't really return to in 1997, but it clearly influenced it. And then it leads into this tray return and this psychedelic wall of sound playing. And it can only lead us one direction. Someone once said that shoegaze is to be on the pond as Brian Eno is to sound opinions. Mm. They're not wrong. We haven't covered it in some time, though. We've been trying to keep our distance, but uh, we're back with a segment here on raging, raging shoegaze. And I am going to talk about an album that started it all. That is My Bloody Valentine's Isn't Anything from 1988. And the song I'm going to play here is called When You Wake, You're Still in a Dream. So we're talking about the gays. Rage gays, to be specific. Well, we have to talk here about the guitarist in the band that Trey noted influenced him more than most in the late 90s as he sought ways to disappear in the recesses of his own band and allow for a more democratic approach for fish. Enter Kevin Shields and Dublin's My Bloody Valentine. Now, we covered their deep blanket of sound and noise and love and noise, and did I mention noise? In episode two, 
Hampton bag, chatting about how Trey embraced Shields like he embraced Hendrix and like he embraced Robert Fripp in 1997 through 2000 to push the band forward through washes of sound. So stepping back here one year earlier to fall of 1996 and one of the most important jams of the era and one of the formative jams that gave the band even more confidence than they were capable of transitioning their sound to groove and would somehow get better. It makes sense to focus on my bloody Valentine's debut. Isn't anything from 1988. So quickly, quick, quick backstory, Kevin Shields and drummer, uh, I am going to totally butcher this name, <laughs> so I sincerely apologize. It's a very traditional Irish name, Colm O. Siosig, I think that's it, uh, met at a karate tournament in 1978 and quickly became friends. They would go through a number of lineup changes in the early 80s. They relocated to the Netherlands at one point and are open for REM. Then they moved to West Berlin in 1984. They recorded an EP before finally settling in London in 1985. They would then go on in the mid 80s to play with increasing frequency while contemplating another relocation to New York City before adding guitarist Belinda Butcher, who became a co-lead vocalist with Shields and gave them the iconic and signifying androgynous sound that really speaks to their overall sound and their overall influence. They released another EP called You Made Me Realize in August of 1988 which was their first initial bit of true success before they then recorded and released their debut LP isn't anything in November of 1988. Isn't anything is considered if not the first, then one of the first shoegaze records ever. It changed everything sonically within alternative rock and would go on to influence bands like slow dive ride and Lush, as well as the Smashing Pumpkins here in the States. And you think of a song like Cherub Rock is just directly influenced by Kevin Shields. This is a monumental record, one so influential. The band nearly bankrupted their label, Creation Creation Records, trying to record the follow-up, Loveless. The album influence was influenced by groups like Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, and the Jesus and Mary Chain, and even the sound Shields was hearing from Public Enemy. The sound here is the key. Just as what Trey was going for in 1995 through 2000 could be defined as soundscape guitar techniques, so too was Shields. Customizing tremolo systems for his Fender Jaguar, he would loosen the tremolo arm to manipulate it while strumming chords, leading to pitch bending, while also using alternate and open tunings. Sound is really unlike anything heard in guitar to that point and makes you feel in and out of focus throughout, and that is not a tip of the cap to... uh, What the hell is that song? Time Time turns turns elastic. elastic. Um, no. apologies to you, Kevin Shields. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> before I go any further into 2009 era, Trey songwriting, we're going to play my bloody Valentine's when you wake up, you're still in a dream off of isn't anything. <laughs>
Okay, Brian, thank you for showcasing Isn't Anything. That's a great album. Often gets kind of lost in the shuffle that is Loveless. But uh, yeah, people should definitely go back and listen to the first MBV album. It's not really window dressing. It's quite good. So now I'm going to talk about an album that um, I guess it's shoegaze. At the very least, it's shoegaze adjacent. There's been... um, Kind of a debate amongst like 40-something guys on Twitter this week of where this is actual shoegaze. But the album uh, is from a band called Hum. The album is called Inlet, and the song we're going to play is In the Den. This is completely unexpected. Here's a completely kick-ass new record from a 90s alternative rock band who put out their last album in 1998. Seriously. Who saw this coming? Not us. I won't lie, um, I was not a huge Hum fan, feverishly awaiting anything resembling new material. Like a lot of 40-year-old dads, I was reasonably familiar with their song uh, Stars off of uh, the 1995 album You'd Prefer an Astronaut because it got a lot of play on MTV's 120 Minutes with a very period-specific video because uh, the band is in a basement they're kind of miming, rocking out. There's blue and red lights. It was probably directed by someone like Kevin Kerslake. I tried to find out who directed it. Wikipedia and YouTube won't tell me. And it got lots of airplay on uh, <clears throat> the, quote, alternative rock stations that were popular in 1995. So in the summer of 1995, after uh, seeing my first fish shows in June, I went to a golf camp based out of Haverford College in mainland Philadelphia. That's a pretty ridiculous sentence now that I say it out loud. But I mentioned, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mentioned that because the van that uh, we would pile into to go play Nine Holes every afternoon, the radio station only played four songs. Lives All Over You, Sponge is Molly, Matthew Sweet, Sick of Myself, and Home Stars. So as such, I kind of had them lumped in with like uh, a fake grunge aka scrunge take on alternative rock when in actuality they were uh, kind of more like a scrappier smashing pumpkins with uh, more epic post-rock ambitions so I really have to go revisit You Prefer an Astronaut and also 1998's Downward is Heavenward in any event I mean I wasn't prepared for the six feet thick metallic blast of shoegaze that makes up the appropriately titled Waves which is the first song on this album this album it's think of the guitars as like world builders conjuring mountains and vistas with every stroke I mean the front man Matt Talbot he's got clean vocals that are kind of perfectly mixed for the shoegaze genre and that they're intelligible without being completely dominating and um, often the eight and nine minute length of these songs kind of suggests like epic post-rock bands like Slint and more recently the last Def Heaven album. The Inlet actually sounds a lot like the last Def Heaven album minus the blackened vocals. Of course, uh, that album being, um, what was it called? Ordinary Human Love, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that was the record where they kind of uh, embraced more major keys got a bit more accessible a bit more smashing pumpkins still heavy as fuck but not quite as uh dark as sunbather or uh new bermuda is that their like third record yeah that record was incredible okay 
So, I mean, people have asked me after, like, just a handful of listens to Inlet, is this already a contender for album of the year? To which I say, it might be. I mean, it's kind of an unreal, unexpected delight, especially if you enjoy waves of undulating guitars in which to lose oneself. And I know if you listen to a Fish podcast and you enjoyed uh, the version of ACDC back from November 21st, 1997, I know that you do. I know that you have a big desire to just bury your head in the speakers and let these guitars completely ki- <laughs> just kick your ass to like tinnitus levels. Like you will, you listen to this record enough, you will develop tinnitus. I've had it for a long time. I've learned to live with it. So be it. So. Let us listen to In the Den, the second song off of Hum's Inlet, and uh, contender for album of the year just because I like these guitars so goddamn much. Thank you guys so much for hanging with us here in uh, episode 103, where we talked about the bathtub gin from the Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky on November 7th, 1997. Really fun episode. Great to get back to a traditional. We've got a few of these lined up here for the latter half of summer and into fall, and we are quite excited about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I will tell you, I'm going to be featuring a jam in the next couple of months i've been wanting to talk about since the onset of beyond the pond i can't wait um so in segment one just a quick recap of the songs we played the synth effect we played neil young's transformer man off of trans and then dave played stevie wonder's golden lady off of inner visions and in segment two rage gaze I played My Bloody Valentine's When You Wake, You're Still in a Dream off of 1988's Isn't Anything. And Dave played Hums in the Den 
off of the recently released record, their first in 22 years inlet. So just a reminder, we are always on social media. You can find us on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond on uh, Spotify. We have our beyond the pond podcast song master playlist for you to audition these songs and then go on to Bandcamp and purchase the shit out of them. Check out this podcast and all the other fantastic podcasts of uh, the of Osiris Media. That's OsirisPod.com, O-S-I-R-I-S-P-O-D.com. Leave us an iTunes review because we read them. We get a kick out of them, and anything to increase our visibility in Apple land is a good thing. Absolutely is. Um Publishing structure, so you guys know this well. You've been with us for over 100 episodes. Um, every other Tuesday, Tuesdays have no feel. We sneak in that lone episode one week after. We're actually doing it right now. The last episode you heard was a week earlier. Um, so, you know, we uh, are trying to keep you guys entertained, trying to keep you guys listening to music, trying to stay relevant here, talking about uh, new music as well as all the music that is going through our heads and our minds if you have any recommendations of jams you want to hear in the future don't hesitate to reach out but uh we're very excited for what we've got coming for you here over the next couple of weeks absolutely and so like brian said please come back in two weeks we'll hold hands probably sing kumbaya we may we may or may not depends on how i feel at the time hopefully uh will be in a reasonably good place as a nation at that time and we will go beyond the pond beyond the pond podcast is part of osiris media and is co-hosted by david goldstein and brian brinkman and it is edited by brian brinkman